Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the Icon of Vacations. Icon of the Seas. Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to this week's edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, your host. I'm joined by Mr. Terry Pluto, who has a new book out. And Terry, we haven't talked since last week. How did your signing go? You were out in Hudson at the Learned Owl last week. How was that one? It was really nice. It's always good when people are almost lined up out the door. So that's good to buy a Facebook and some Browns books. And so that was terrific. And so the uh, next time around is Saturday um, from 1 to 2 p.m. at Barnes & Noble and Mentor. So there's the commercial and that. And if you want to, so Saturday, 1 to 2, Barnes & Noble and Mentor. And then if you want to get a signed copy, send right to your door, uh, terryplutobook.com. All run, run, all run together, terryplutobook.com. Great. And this is, of course, Terry, your new book, The Guy with the Sign and Other Thoughts on Faith in Everyday Life. And as you mentioned, Saturday at one o'clock and that Barnes and Noble, I think, is at 7900 Menor Avenue in Menor. So, uh, yeah, head out, see Terry. Great gift for the holidays. We've already talked about that. So that should be fun. All right, Terry. So um, let's get into the Browns and we've got some calves we're going to talk about the Guardians. I want to see what you think about this possible Class A trade that is being knocked about in baseball rumor circles. And then we do have two more letters from readers. Uh, we asked a couple months ago for people to send in where they're from and why they're Cleveland sports fans for our 100th podcast episode. We've got a couple more of those. We've had, boy, from all over the world, everything from South Carolina to Kenya to Colorado to, I think we had Slovenia a couple of weeks ago. So thanks for everybody who sent those in. We'll keep reading those as we can. So, um, hey, Terry, you've got a column. We're taping this on Tuesday late afternoon, and you've got a column going up tomorrow morning, Wednesday I thought it was really interesting because you know how Browns fans are, Terry. It's like, oh, woe is our team. Why do the breaks always fall against us? And I thought you had some really good perspective about the quarterback situations in the AFC right now. Why don't you get into that for a minute? Well, rather than – I mean, the one of the obvious ones, you look at the AFC North, the only quarterback who started the season and still playing quarterback, David Campbell, is – um, our man in Baltimore, Mr. Lamar Jackson, right? That's it. Yeah, because right now Pittsburgh's on the Trubisky. Um, Cincinnati is with, uh, what was his name, Browning? I mean, that's when you know you're yep, uh, Jake, Browning. Jake Browning. Yep. Of course, the, the Browns are on Joe Flacco, I guess. Uh, but what I really looked at was there's kind of seven teams vying for the three wildcard spots in the uh, the AFC. And 
They're between records of seven and five and six and six. By the way, the NFL loves this. There's even a couple teams at five and seven because, you know, the more teams that are at least could see the playoffs, even if it's in the distance, or knocking on the door, the better because it creates interest, TV ratings, everything else. You know, the whole league, they'd love to have everybody probably between eight and nine and nine and eight. That would be their ideal situation. Uh, so if you look at this, uh, and say, all right, here are the teams that are seven and five. I'll give you the the, the team. You give me the quarterback. Pittsburgh, right now. Uh, Mitch Trubisky. Yep. Indianapolis. Um. So they have Gardner Minshew now, who the Browns saw a few weeks ago. Yep. Houston. C.J. Stroud, the, and the rookie of the year. Yep. And the Browns. And the Browns have Joe Flacco. Their okay. fourth quarterback of the year. Of their four teams there, only Houston really has their projected starter from opening day. Everybody's seven and five. Okay, and then you go. This is actually a little more interesting in terms of the quarterback list. The six and six teams. Denver, its quarterback is? Uh, Russell Wilson. Still is, yep. Mm-hmm. Buffalo. Uh, Josh Allen, still, still in yeah. there. By the way, isn't it interesting that they both have had their quarterbacks? They're only six and six. I think they'd be better than that. And then finally, Cincinnati. Uh, Jake Browning. Yeah, who okay. threw for 350-some yards, I think, last night in the win over the Jacksonville. So that was kind of a coming years, out party. 27 years old, never played an NFL regular season game until just recently. And then, of course, you see what happened with Jacksonville, with Trevor Lawrence out, and their quarterback this week will probably be? Um. C.J. Beathard, right? Yes. He mopped up last night or came in last night yes. after the ankle injury. Yep. He with a 2-10 and 10 record for San Francisco. Now, I know sometimes the win-loss records could be a bit deceiving, but if you're 2-10 and 10 with Kyle Shanahan, it probably means you're not very good. So what's the point of all this is that, yeah, the Browns are 7-5, and five, and it's not like they have all these super teams or super quarterback situations they're competing against i mean this really is you know one big uh it's almost like a mud fight or something you know they're just out guys just rolling around you know who gets hurt who's in there um so they got a shot to make it but it also makes a strong case for what david would you say well, I've seen a lot of stuff on social media today about this, especially from some agents who are saying if this season has proved anything, it's that teams need to invest in a good backup quarterback, which I believe is the Case Keenum corollary that yes, Terry it does. Has, yeah, I've always believed inve- that. It's invented, yes. So, go ahead, Terry. When you go into a season presuming your quarterback's going to play all or even most of the games, I just think it's silly. History says otherwise. I could be wrong, but I think I'm up to 53 quarterbacks have started so far this year, and it might be more. Um, there were 66 last year, but um, so, you know, we'll have to go in and take a look at that. But I'm just so glad that uh, it's mixed up like this because it keeps it really interesting. But the other thing it makes the case for is – you got to play Joe Flacco this week. You can't even think about DTR or anything else. Yeah, so let's get into that, Terry. What did you think of the way Joe Flacco played the other day against the Rams? And everybody's saying they got to come back with him, and it sounds like you agree with that. Why? 
What what impressed you? Well, they didn't see anybody else play like that. It's been in a orange helmet this year, including, I mean, Deshaun Watson, a couple of nice halves here and there, but these the poise and um, ability to stay in the pocket, get rid of the ball, and not uh, take sacks. Um, his timing on the throws. To me, it's amazing. He hadn't played all year. He didn't go to training camp. He didn't do anything. Yeah, I mean, Kevin Stefanski talked a lot the last few days about, you know, him getting the team in and out of the huddle, getting him the right formations, getting just the way he conducted business. But, man, I, I, I was surprised. I knew he – like, he's always had a great arm, right? But the thing that really impressed me was the accuracy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he said he was basically thrown to relatives and his kids in the backyard yeah. all season. And for him to show up like that and be able to fit the ball into windows like he did, I was like, whoa, like – this guy's been sitting. How come nobody else jumped on this guy? I don't know. With all it. the quarterback And injuries. also remember, if his agent had to have been calling the Browns every time somebody else got hurt, he's calling everything. He believe it. Shot. Yeah. yeah. So the Browns turned him down a couple times before they took him, too. Um, the fact that he could do the get him out of the huddle, get him lined up and all that, a 50-year-old quarterback could do that. He's played in the NFL for quite a while. It really can't. Who's been good. But can he then throw the ball and handle what you're to your point. That was a separator for me. Uh, when they were talking about that Flacco, you know, he has a, a sense of confidence and poise that he got, could uh, grab the game plan and process it quickly, that he could explain it to others. Of course, that's almost all on the intellectual level. You still have to be, we're talking, this is a 38 year old quarterback heading towards 39. You know, the physical part of it and the timing, they always talk about the speed of the game. And maybe other than probably the interception, then towards the end when it was just kind of scattered football when they were trying to desperately do something. Other than that, that game didn't look very fast to him at all. No, I mean, he looked like he'd been playing for weeks. Um, yeah. Terry, you, you got an email that I wanted to read here real quick. I, I think it's from Doug Downing, and he's from mm-hmm. Sneeds Ferry, North Carolina. He has a Flacco observation. He says, um, hey, Terry, did you closely observe Joe Flacco's, number one, pocket presence, number two, arm action, and number three, ball rotation? Number one, he stands in the pocket and reads his progressions. No one open, drill it out of bounds, don't take a sack. Some scrambling, but nothing wild, which leads to poor throws. Number two, the guy is 6'6 and doesn't need to use all the arm angles. I'm so tired of hearing about that because he can read the field better and throw over the top with over eight feet of height of release extension. I don't recall seeing any batted balls. That's a great point. Number three, the flight of his ball is beautiful, tight spiral with good velocity, but not too much for the distance. What a what great touch. I don't know if he'll continue on this trajectory, but it was possibly the best Browns passing performance of the season. I look forward to the next several weeks. Thanks for indulging me. Uh, thanks for that, Doug. He's right, right, Terry? We didn't see any batted balls. We didn't see kind of any double hitches. He knew where he wanted to go with the ball and put it there. And the one interception, he would have liked to get that ball out to the sideline. I think that was that was placement. Yeah. Um, more than decision, it was more of a, of a off throw. But that was like the only bad thing I saw he, him do all day. He had a throw early in the game because I was looking at the game again where he kind of threw it in the two – there was a guy open for a second. It might have been Elijah Moore, but there were three uh, jerseys around him for the Rams, and it got batted up in the air. He was lucky that didn't get intercepted. But that's it. I, I mean, he threw the ball like 45 times or whatever it was. So um, that was a um, 
It was really impressive. And I thought his ball fakes, you know, to the running backs, the, the timing was good. Um, you know, the Rams have a pretty good defense, and he he held his own. So uh, they have to play him. He clearly uh, wants to prove a point. He must have really kept himself in good shape. I mean, his legs and everything else, too. Because he he did not look tired or anything in any way. He didn't. He looked really good. Um, so Terry, given how good Flacco played, I wanted I had something I wanted to ask you about. Um, <laughs> I don't want to be this guy. Like every time the Browns lose, you get emails like this. The Browns yeah. should have run the ball more. The Browns should have run the ball more. I and I'm not going down that road, but. I was watching that game the other day in the fourth quarter, the Browns were in that game and there comes a time in the game where you're, it's like a boxing match. And you're like, you know what? This guy's on the ropes a little bit. I thought in the fourth quarter, the Browns offensive line was starting to put the Rams defensive front on the ropes a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I went back and I looked to start the first quarter, the first drive, the Browns ran Kareem hunt for five yards. Then they had an incompletion and a completion. Then they ran hunt again for six yards and then they had a pass for seven and then they went to strong and he ran for seven yards and then they had two more passes and Kareem Hunt got another handoff and he went for six and then they gave it to strong and strong ran for 13 Yeah, <laughs> and I'm watching this and then and the next play was the touchdown to Harrison Bryant which put the Browns up 20 to 19 with 856 to play and at that point I'm watching the game and I'm saying to myself Kevin Stefanski, the king of the play-action pass in the running game, is going to lean into this running game the rest of the way and let the Browns' offensive line do some work, and they're just going to grind this thing out like an AFC North. Like, we watch them play the Ravens, and we watch them play the Steelers, and this is the formula. Like, they, they get into the game, and then late in the game, they just wear the other guys down and just squeeze the life out of them. Like, this is what's going to happen. And it didn't happen. Um, the, you know, the, the next series, the, the Browns forced a four, four and out. It wasn't a three and out. There was one first down. The Browns got the ball back with 651 left, and the first play was a pass, and it was the interception down the right side, and it was all downhill from there. But I was I was kind of feeling, and maybe Stefanski would have run the ball more if that, if that interception hadn't happened, but I thought that was a point where if he would have approached it like an AFC North game at that point, if – if that first play, I'm not saying, all right, it was an interception. They could have done something different, but like, I'm I'm going to be watching for that the rest of the way. Like when you get to that point late in the third, early in the fourth, are the Browns going to play AFC North ball and just like, we're going to slug this out and we're going to be tougher than you. Like that's been his mantra all season. Did you, did you feel that the other day or was it just me? Well, he had a new toy to play with, with Flacco. He mm-hmm. hasn't had a guy to throw downfield like that since Watson. And I would argue that arm strength wise, uh, Flacco's even strong. He had one of the strongest arms in the NFL, still does. So, uh, but that's tempting. There, like you said, he decided to first take a shot downfield, and I think part of him was thinking, "Man, this guy just looks like his midseason form." And there, you saw that no, not quite. He's not quite all the way there, and it was just a tough time to um, uh, maybe take a, a shot that you didn't really did take. And as you're correct, you pointed out how the, the running game was pretty good. Um, sometimes Kevin can't help himself. You know, just like with the P.J. Walker thing at the end of the Seattle game, you know, that it just – they may line up 
in a formation that begs you to pass. But do you have to pass, and do you have to kind of make a risky pass on top of that too? So we'll we'll see what he how he how he schemes it up from here on out. Um, but I mean, when we look at these different teams, I mean, if I'm looking at if I'm Denver and I'm six and six with Russell Wilson, and I'm Buffalo and I'm six and six with Josh Allen, and I'm going Cleveland seven and five with four different quarterbacks. How is that? <laughs> I mean, there's really. no doubt about it. Yeah, yeah. we talked a couple and, weeks about how Kevin should be in the in the mix for Coach of the Year, at least in the discussion, and we'll see how things end. But you're right, Terry. There's no way this team should be seven and five right now. It just shows how hard it is to consistently win in the NFL. That, that's what this shows, and yeah. that's why if you could hang in there, uh, see the Steelers are the masters of hanging in there. How are they seven and five? The same way the Browns are doing it. Like yes. I think I mentioned this last week. The, the Browns have adopted the Steelers' way of doing things, which is like load up the offensive line and the defensive line, and you're going to be in every, pretty much every game, and you're yeah. going to be there until the end. And I really feel like that's why the Browns are there because they've been able to rely on those two units to get the job done, even with all the turmoil, uh, with injuries and everything. David, what did you see about the Browns' defense when you're back looking at the tape? Because when I watched it, I was just fast-forwarding to the offense. I just wanted to watch Flacco. Yeah, I, you know, it's a long season. You're going to have bad games. I'm really thinking about not having Denzel Ward and the ripple effect of that. And mm-hmm. it seems like the last few weeks that they've been playing more zone coverages because Denzel isn't there and they've had to bump everybody up one spot. I think that changes the way the front seven plays because the pa- the pass rush isn't getting as much time to get there because guys are more open. So I, I, I'm eager to see when he comes back and they're back to kind of some full strength here, what they look like. Because I think that Jim Schwartz likes to pressure the quarterback and he likes to play man coverage. I mean, he's changed it up a few times this year, but that's like the basis of what they do. And when you don't have your best corner guy, that changes things. So that's what I was seeing. What about you? My thought is this, uh, and this goes to the pass rush. All right, um, Garrett's playing with one arm. They gave Ogbo $18 million or whatever it was. I forgot what it was, $24 million, A lot of money to be able to go from the other side. They gave Zadarius Smith, I think it was $12 million. And they gave Tomlinson a ton of money. Where were those guys? This was their opportunity. I mean, these are legit NFL starters from other teams. And they were brought in, you know, for games like this, not just to be the other guy from Miles, but if Miles or or another person is out that, you know, you could step up and really get some pressure. Now, clearly the Rams were running a lot of quick action stuff with, uh, with Stafford, but nonetheless, what they had, I think, was no sacks, two quarterback hits. I think he's only rushed like three or four times, you know, where he hurries. Um, he was really just kind of staying back there and able to get his passes. And I don't know what I they agree. were doing. Was it, was it the kid Puka? I don't know what the, how, what what coverage that was. I don't know what that was on him. Yeah, they caught the Browns. I, I think it was called an in, an inverted cover two where the safeties come up and 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 get tight to the line and, and somebody else fills in behind them. But when you've got Sione Takitaki, 
playing defense against him, you know you're in a bad way. Yeah, that's yeah. not going to work. I mean, just looking at that, that's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a that's a deal there. So, you know, Schwartz, this is a time that I would say um, of all the games, and they, they had a couple other bad games on defense, but this one really bothered me because they did not step up at all. And the and opportunities they were there. Terry, I, I got to tell you, Greg Newsom, it was it could not have been a good film couple of days no. for him after that game. I mean, he, they're running at him because they know he doesn't want to tackle yeah. right now. And he's going to have to change the way they play or they're going to keep running at him. He, he, I thought maybe it was just me noticing that, but like um, he graded out as the lowest Browns defensive back uh, among PFF. He was down in the 40s for last week. I think I have it right here. Yeah, he. Uh, Martin Emerson was the highest PFF grader off the Rams game at 66. And then you got Halasi, Ford, and Greg Newsom, 41.4. He just was not physical. He just didn't want to get involved in anything that didn't involve pass coverage. The other I think day, from you need what to. I saw on the tape. And he's much better than that. He's a better player than that. Well, David, why don't you explain how the great Braves work? Because not everybody lives in PFF land. Like, yeah. What's so the, what's the, like, what would be an A or a B? Yeah, so Irie Harris from our staff, he posts the Browns offensive and defensive pro football focus grades every week. And, and we actually have an explainer in there, but the easiest way, and we actually have this in the post, the easiest way to understand it is your grades in school, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so 84, 89 to 85 is a pro bowler, 70 to 84 is a starter, 60 to 69 is a backup, and anything below 59 is you were replaceable for that game. So a 43. 41.4 is not a good grade. And I know that Jim Schwartz was like, we got to get more out of you. You're supposed to be one of our, our best defensive backs. You got to start playing like it. Um, I'm guessing that went down the other day because he, he did not have his best game. And I think no, he would admit and that. And I will so. argue that the defensive line did not help those defensive backs either. Yep. And they really it all didn't. works together. It really and does. And of course so. they weren't all that good against the run again. So, this is a good thing. Now it's a challenge for Schwartz because you know he came in here and all all was well, and then then they were the greatest defense in the world, and then all the accolades came their way. And then now here come the injuries, whereas the offense almost has dealt with injuries from day one. They've been battling through that, just going, you know, patching it together. I mean, when Nick Chubb goes down in the second quarter of game two, I will say I was talking with a. Uh, uh, in fact, a friend of my Bishop Joey Johnson, who I use in my faith columns, who who watches the Browns and that, and he goes, "Oh man, did they miss Chubb? That that guy, that dude, you know? They were we had that dude, you know? I mean, it's a good question. You had Chubb instead of seven and five, nine and three, easy. Because then, you know, the, some of those games, he's just, I mean, he's terrific. And also, I just think his steadying presence helps whoever the quarterback is. When you have Chubb in your backfield. And also, every time you fake the ball to Chubb, then, of course, the uh, opponents have to uh, handle it. So I would argue them not having Chubb all this time, it would be almost like the Browns' defense not having um, having Miles. It's a good analogy, Terry. So, hey, while we're on the topic of the running game, we do have a, uh, an email we got from DGL mm-hmm. in Wilmington, North Carolina, about Kareem Hunt. So he says, um, have we seen enough of Kareem Hunt? No burst and a 3.3 yards per carry. It also seems he gets caught behind the line often. I'd rather see more appear strong with his 4.7 yards per carry. What are you seeing out of Kareem Hunt, Terry? Well, some of it has to do with when are they running him. I mean, they're, you know, third and two, Kareem, run into five guys and see if you can get a first down. 
I mean, there's, there's some of that. He's not getting a whole lot of sweeps or anything else. Um, and I do think he has lost some speed because they don't even throw the ball to him as much. You know, Strong is a guy that Andrew Barry targeted and uh, really liked, I guess, even going back to the draft and that. So this is one of, a, you know, some of the draft guys of the future that they want to look at, along with Jerome Ford. Um, so that's really, I think, a, a fair point that he has lost some, but also keep in mind when are they, when and where are they using him? And usually they're using him in situations when it's a short yardage one and they know he's going to get the ball. You're right on it. That's what I'm seeing too. When they need more yards, they give it to Ford. And when they need a, they need two yards on, on third and one and a half, it goes to Kareem Hunter down at the goal line. Like I, I would not underestimate Kareem Hunt's value to this team. I mean, we've seen him yeah. score touchdowns in very tight situations, and getting the ball in the end zone from inside the five is not easy, man. Like, and and he gets in, like he, he falls forward on every carry, and he's not going to break a seventy yarder the way he maybe used to. But this is, you know, a lot of teams have a guy who's kind of a speed every down back, and then someone who comes in on short yardage. I think the Patriots for all the lack of success they're having like that's what ezekiel elliott is doing for them now i think mm-hmm. um as a short yardage guy so yeah it's kind I think of like a guy yeah. on the pitching staff he throws in one inning this is what he does yeah uh, and remember they picked kareem off the street you know he had he wasn't playing anywhere that is interesting to me and how of course it just shows that the nfl's bias against veterans when they get older how you could have some other good guys sitting out there and you could bring them in and they could be very valuable to you. Absolutely. All right, Terry, I want to get to your weekly kicker update, but I I did have an interesting thing. kind of a little trivia question. So I know some fans like to see the ball spread around. I think, I think Joe Flacco threw to nine different guys against the Rams the other Mm -hmm. day. What percentage of Brown's targets on passes do you think Amari Cooper has received this season? Percentage-wise, oh, so of all the oh, passes mean, thrown, what percentage what has been thrown to Amari Cooper? Yeah, twenty. That is a great guess. I thought it was going to be higher than that. It's actually twenty-two percent, and he missed some the other day when he went out, obviously. Yeah. But uh, I thought it would have been up higher, like closer to thirty percent, because he man, it's it sure seems like he gets a lot of balls, right? Uh, the, this was interesting to me. There's only three teams that have a lower target for their number one guy. Um, and we don't have to go into those, but Tyreek Hill is the top in the NFL. He gets 32.5% mm-hmm. of all the Dolphins targets. And Jamar Chase in Cincinnati gets 29% of all the Bengals pass targets. Travis Kelsey is at 23.8. I thought he would be higher too. So you can see Amari Cooper, you might think Amari Cooper's getting a ton of targets. Um, but on the Browns, he's at 22. Um, Moore is at 20.6. David Njoku is at 20.3. And then Ford is at 10.7. And this is from um, a guy on Twitter named Sam Hoppin who puts it, he puts a chart together every week. I, th- I just thought that was interesting. I thought it would have been much higher. So maybe that's some perspective for Browns fans. I guess maybe I'm the other one. Why don't they throw the ball to him more? Yeah. I'm really like that. I, that's my feeling. Now, I do think he has a rib injury. And has had that for a while. That's where those drops are coming from or whatever. And um, as somebody who's had rib injuries twice in my life, not from football, but just from stupid living, um, I can tell you that I would not be wanting to try to catch a football with that, much less while somebody's hitting me. Um, that 
And that really hurt Flacco because he was starting to cook a little bit with Amari when Amari went out in that game too. Um, I just I'm very I was very encouraged by Flacco the just the this the way the Browns looked very together on offense. Like the I think it was Downing that wrote that, uh, David Downing or whatever. I thought his stuff was right on. Yeah, and the, and the Browns have some home games coming up. They play well at home during the Kevin Stefanski era, so we'll see uh, We'll see how these last few games play out. Um, all right, Terry, the Terry weekly kicker update. Do you want me to run through Dustin Hopkins' sure. stats, or you got him there? No, go um, ahead. Okay, he's 30 of 33 on field goals with a long of 58, and that's uh, he's up to 90.9% now Jeez. on field goals. 16 of 18 on extra points, and he's seven, still 7 of 7 from 50 yards or longer. So... And he's kicking himself about kicker kicking about that missing an extra point. Uh, but you watch the, the 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 kid kicking for the Rams. Uh, I forgot his last name, Haveresk or something like that. He was on the Browns practice squad because I remember I checked with the Browns. I said after they uh, um, they cut Cade York, I said who they who they bring in, and he mentioned this guy. Said it was kind of a Bubba Ventrone project guy that Bubba had with the Colts last year on the practice squad. And they told me then that they liked him, but they really thought he needed more seasoning in that. And you could see, I mean, several of these teams now have gone through two and three kickers this year. And it's just such a, this is the best kicking they've had since Phil Dawson. Like if this guy misses an extra point and he's got to go out there and kick another field goal or whatever, I'm not real nervous. I just figured he missed. He'll go back there. He'll think about it and fix it. That's that's kind of my view of it, and that's what we've seen. Well, you mentioned a mud uh, a mud slinging contest earlier, yeah. Terry. We're going to see how uh, Dustin Hopkins earns his money the rest of the way here. I think it's supposed to rain pretty heavily on Sunday, so on the grass field, it should be an interesting kicking situation. This is when he's really going to have to earn his money the rest of the way. I for, so I forgot what the temperature was. Where Phil Dawson said the ball would go three to five yards. Uh, less than I think it was 40 and under. And then if it gets to like 25 degrees, it's going like seven yards less than normal. He had it all figured out. Now, I don't know if Dustin Hopkins has his own Dick Goddard weather sort of situation, you know, because Dawson also checked two weather services. One was Dick Goddard's and another was like the national AccuWeather and the national weathers or um, to figure it out. But, the temperature also, as you said, came into play. Now, I don't think it's supposed to be that cold, but to keep in mind not only about the ball being wet, which makes it a little harder to snap and a little harder to hold, it also creates a situation where the kicker could easily slip just a little bit, and uh, that could cause a problem. I think uh, Hopkins said after that missed extra point that something like he swept through it, which meant his his footing wasn't quite right. It doesn't take much for these guys to mess up. That's why when you're talking about being successful at almost 91%, I mean, it's hard to do almost anything right 91% of the time. Anything. Better believe it. And uh, yeah, Terry, there's a 70% chance of rain Sunday and the high is going to be around 53. So it will be a challenge, and the wind will be coming off the lake, I'm sure, as it always yep. is this time of year. So, All right, let's take a break, Terry. When we come back, uh, let's get into the Cavaliers. I want to ask you, are the Cavs an average team? So we'll get into that and more when we return on Terry's Talking. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. 
From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. We're back on Terry's Talking. David Campbell and Terry Pluter. We're going to get into the Cavaliers here. Terry, Chris Fedor, our colleague, was out at practice the last couple of days, and the Cavs are 11-9, and nine, and he was asking some of the guys – where they think the Cavs are at at the 20-game point of the season. And uh, I think it was Max Struess who said, this, we're average. <laughs> like, this is an average team. I guess what the old NFL thing is, you're, you are what your record says you are. But are the Cavs an average team in your mind? What do you think? The way they played, sure. Now, Struess should know about that because Miami was an average team almost the entire regular season last year. And if my memory is correct, didn't they have to win the play-in tournament? to get into the regular playoffs. So they went through that whole thing. Uh, my frustrations with the Cavs is that when they are struggling in a closer game, they don't know how they want to play. You know, how do they want to score? They, you know, they opened the season with this idea of playing faster and shooting more threes, which is counter to kind of how they're set up somewhat. And they've lost the, the big men at, at different times in there, they, the, the height advantage they have. And so I still think, you know, we can go around and around. They've had guys come in and out of the lineup. But 11 and 9 actually is on your way to 44 wins. You'd want to be better in 44 and 38. Nonetheless, I mean, I'm just not as alarmed as some people are. And, and of course, I knew the moment I wrote that story about, have you noticed the Cavs have been playing better and they won six out of eight? And then he just kicked the ball over the place against Portland. <laughs> that's always the journalistic kiss of death. You know that's coming. Um, but that was the same thing. If you watch that game, they got all out of whack and how they wanted to score. Then you had Donovan Mitchell trying to do it all himself. And that gets very frustrating for everyone. Uh, they have not been able to, I think, develop much of rhythm on offense and how they really want to play. So let me ask you about that, Terry. What? Let's say it's they're heading in the last five minutes of a game. It's a three-point game. How do you want to see them play when the game is on the line at the end? What do you want to see them doing? Running pick and roll with the big guys. Do you want to see them uh, in more of a motion offense? What do you want to see the offense look like? I still think you could run through your big guys. You could, whether it's a high pick and roll, or you just you play high low with them. Um, because here's the the deal: there you can, even if you say throw it to Allen at the high post and he throws it down low to Mobley, that's going to draw a lot of the defense in, and they could throw it back out to guys that are open, be it from the corner or somewhere else. And by the way, then we're talking one pass high, one pass low, maybe another three passes, just to keep the ball moving around. Whereas I think what happens when you're just doing a lot of pick and roll, so 
Dynamo's coming down and Allen's setting the pick, the other three guys are just watching. And there isn't seem to be much thought of if I come around the pick and roll, there's only going to be two guys involved. The guy dribbling the ball and the guy picking and rolling looking for a lob. And the other guys don't seem to be uh, together in that. Uh, I really was hoping they would show more more motion. But it's possible that when you have a, a ball-dominant player like um, like Donovan and then also to a lesser extent Darius, you just don't get a lot of that team motion stuff. It's e- you could say it's it's tempting and easy in the NBA to just rely on the pick and roll. All right. Well, that Portland lost, I think that hit a lot of people in the gut when they mm-hmm. saw the way that all went down. And I know there were meetings after the game and everything. Yeah. The Cavs, they are 7-3 and three in their last 10 games. And they, Chris Fedor had this in his story today. But I, I, they're still the sixth worst in point differential in the NBA. And they're 23rd in offense, 8th in defense, and 20th in net rating. So you know how it is, Terry. I, I, you probably have had some coaches talk to you about this over the years. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on it. But the one weapon that a coach has when it comes to getting guys to play different is play is minutes. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you look at the Cavs, they've pretty much been going with like a seven, eight man rotation. Uh, I think last night it was not last night, but against Detroit when they won, it was Garland, Struess, Mitchell, Allen, and Mobley all over 34 minutes. Okoro had 33 and Niang had 22. Um, in the loss to Portland, they only, they played eight guys. It was Lavert off the bench for 26 minutes, Niang 18 minutes, Okoro 16 like if you're the head coach how do you get guys to whether it's playing harder or smarter uh I know we've talked about Darius Garland's turnovers how would you be managing this roster would you bring more guys into it would you be playing some of these guys longer Craig Porter Jr. has kind of been up and down in his minutes how would you manage this roster to kind of get guys attention a little bit well the classic thing especially guys coming off the bench you reward them You get what you stress. It's an old coaching term. And so you reward the people who play the way you want them to play. Okoro should be playing more um, because now he has defense. He has a really learning how to slash to the rim. uh, And just I think he's had a really good year. It's too bad that knee uh, fired up on him. Uh, Porter does the same thing. He's just a tough, gritty guard, gets in there. In fact, I might play those two together, and then I go, oh, well, who's going to shoot my three? So you can throw Struess out there or somebody else with them. Um, and then I think I would, you know, he used to talk about the grit. That's what uh, JB would discuss. Well, I want to I see a grit lineup. These are This is what I put in. When I don't see, I'm, see the defense I want, I'm going to this four or five group in there. And it might be Porter and Okoro and Struess and, you know, uh, maybe one of the guards and a big guy, something like that. So and, your starting lineup, your small ball lineup, and then your grit lineup. I like yeah, that. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. And that grit lineup may also be kind of small ball if you're thinking about it. So let's let's make one. So if you have your backcourt, uh, you would have, uh, say, Garland and Porter, just to, or Mitchell and Porter. Then you have Struess as small forward. And then you have another small forward, basically, with the coral. You're small. So then you got to play one of your big guys. Uh, that's that's what I would do. And I would just go after the other team, you know, 
body up on them and just do that. Make them try to beat you off the dribble. They're always so fearful of, well, if you get beat off the dribble, it's kind of like you're afraid to have your good defensive backs guard your receivers one-on-one. But if you've got guys that can defend, boy, it makes it a lot easier. You just get – I just get so tired in the NBA too. It's a lazy approach to – the minute that somebody sets a pick, we'll just switch out. Switch out on the pick. Yeah, you they don't know, even try to fight through they don't, it. Don't even try to. Don't even. Don't. No thought to who's setting the pick and who's defending. Just switch. You know why the idea is? Well, this way everybody knows what they should do on every single play. But if I got a coral and I got Struce or whatever, I'm not switching. You know, you stay with your man and and Alan, you stick with the big man who's ever setting the pick there. Um, I'm I'm very. I would like to see. I may write that. It's time for a grit lineup. I like that. Yeah. I see t-shirts. I see uh, yeah, commercials right. for McDonald's, the whole bit. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, Terry. But, um, but well, I'm very serious. If you want that, then you have to um, develop it, celebrate it. Whatever happened to the junkyard dog thing? Are they bored with that now? I haven't heard about the junkyard dog lately. So, yeah, yeah maybe the good thing will be. Feeder yeah. needs to investigate. What happened to the <laughs> junkyard dog? And you're right on it with a coral. He played 16 minutes, just to recap, against Portland yeah. and 33 in the win over Detroit the other night. And mm-hmm. I think JB was on the same page as you were. So interesting stuff. So, um, okay, so the Cavs did not make it into the elimination part of the in-season tournament. By the way, Terry, we have not been in favor of the in-season tournament, but ugly courts apparently are a big hit with fans because the – ESPN ratings were up 20% compared to last year's games. So people are turning on seeing ugly courts and like, oh, well, this must be different than a usual November, December NBA game that I'm used to watching. So there was and I that. I will say this, based on what Fedor has written and some others, is a lot of the players were into it more than I thought. Anything that makes the regular season more interesting to the regular players and into it, I'm for. Um, I'm not for ugly courts, but what do I know? All right, so the Cavs got a couple of replacement games scheduled. They're going to be playing Wednesday night against Orlando at home, and then they travel down to Miami for a Friday night game, and then the schedule picks up as usual next week. No breaks for them there. Yeah, not much, really. They they didn't uh, get the luck of the draw in terms of the replacement opponents. But, uh, yeah, and the teams that are still in it will be in Vegas all week, and it should be some uh, some good TV. So we'll see how it works out. I really wish I had more of a clue what's going on with Garland. I don't. He just seems uh, sloppy. It's it's like he he's he's making like maybe the first pass. He doesn't realize that like on some of his his drives in there, he's throwing a lot of balls right into the heart of the defense. The, the key is packed, and maybe he's trying to force it to the big guy or whatever. Um, but he just, you know, the old thing, he should be better than that and smarter than that. And I, I just, I'm not sure why. And I think that it's always going to be a bit of a um, basketball tension between he and Mitchell and how they handle the ball. Because sometimes they, it's almost like they take turns. You know, one has the ball, the other goes to the opposite side of the floor. I remember JB explaining to me that he liked that so that, if you load up on Mitchell, he could throw the ball to the other side, and there's Garland. But I don't see that happening that much. Yeah, we ran through Garland's turnover numbers during his career, yeah. Terry. It's um, he is up to well, I think he's a he was at four point. I'm trying, trying to remember where he was a couple of weeks ago, but he's at four point three turnovers per game right now and five point nine assists. So 
he's got to keep getting that turnover number down as yeah, he was almost at five before that. Yeah. Yeah. It was a 4.8. I'm trying to remember what it was last week, but anyway, that ratio has got to improve if the Cavs are going to move up the standings. And the same here, thing so. is assists got to go up also. You said they're 5.9? 5.9, yep. Yeah. Because sometimes, like, if you're a guy that's getting 8 to 10 assists a game, there aren't too many of those guys, but there's some, and you're making four turnovers, well, okay. There's it, it, It's kind of like if you're throwing 40 touchdown passes in the NFL, you may be throwing a little more interceptions than somebody else, but you're also being very productive in those passes that you're throwing. Um, so that that's like I said, it, it's a very odd season for him. Maybe he'll snap out or whatever's in it. All right, Terry, let's move on to the Guardians here. We're running a little behind, and I want to keep us moving. So there's been a lot of talk that baseball winter meetings are going on in Nashville right now. Paul Hoynes, our colleague, is down there covering that, and there's been a lot of talk about the Shane Bieber prospects for a trade for the Guardians, which we expected coming in. But over the last week or so, there's been a lot of Emmanuel Classe rumors about whether the Guardians would move him and a ton of interest, obviously, in a guy with his kind of velocity and movement. I, is this Class A trade proposal thing that's out there a good idea for the Guardians or a bad idea in, in your mind? And they need hitting, uh, which is they the did. whole crux of the argument. This is but probably what do you think the, about all this? Probably when they sit there and they go, okay, who can we trade that could bring us back you know, a quality hitter? And then and that assumes, you know, you don't want to trade Logan Allen, Bybee, you know, Bibby, um, Gavin Williams. You don't want to trade those guys. You don't want to trade Bo Naylor. Uh, and it doesn't make any sense to trade Josh Naylor because you need hitters. So then you're down to, like you said, uh, Bieber, and you're down to Class A possibly. I think it's hard for them to say Class A because they have so many um, – so much team control with him. Secondly, they traded for Barlow because they want to help Class A. They don't want Barlow to try to save 40 games, but they're looking for somebody to help him. Now, I was told we have their, the exact quote I was given from a high up was, we're not interested in moving Class A. He goes, of course, we always listen. Well, that's because you don't know what will develop. Uh, now, with Bieber... Um, I was just told, well, you know, we listen. I something that was more like we don't think that anything's going to happen there, but we're listening. That's a little different, and uh, you always have to be careful as you listen to the different what message are they sending out. But if I were another team and I heard there's any shot at all on Class A, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna call them up. Yeah, I, I just can't see it happening, Terry. No, I don't know what they get. Like, it, it's just the opposite of what the Guardians do when they make trades. I mean, Class A, he's going to make two point nine million dollars no. next season, and then four point nine in twenty twenty five, and six point four in twenty twenty six, and then the Guardians have team options for twenty seven and twenty eight at ten million a season. No, I mean that that's that's what they teams love this kind of setup, and the Guardians have him. Like you said, team control for five years. To give that up, man, it, it would also, have to be some package. I do know for a fact in their postseason meetings, they identified late inning relief was a big problem. So you don't turn around and trade the guy that you really you ran almost till his arm fell off in those late innings. You know, you don't see very often a guy leaves the league and saves and blown saves. They've known that over the last two years where he has led the league in appearances and total appearances the last two years. They basically they they you know, I'm not gonna say it's malpractice, that's unfair, but it was wrong how much they used him. 
because of those high leverage situations. They need to not trade Class A. They need to get Class A even more help, uh, be it they develop someone else to go with Barlow or something, because right now I don't know what to make of Trevor Steffen other than the last couple of years when he pitches in the late innings, it's not good. Karen Check drives them all nuts. You know, doesn't hold anybody on base. He walks guys. Uh, Francona at the end just couldn't stand it anymore with him. It wasn't personal. It was baseball-wise. And so you, then you're, you know, Sam Henkins. You, they, you take Class A out of the mix, they're not going to trade you a closer back. Yeah, and we've seen this, too. There's no better way or no worse way to dishearten a team than to be oh, blowing yeah. a bunch of leads late after you put it, you know, you're in the eighth inning, ninth inning, mm-hmm. you think you've got a win locked up and to have things fall apart. You have that happen a bunch of times and a team will lose hope and morale pretty quickly. So I think you're right. I'd be just curious to see, but I, well, a lot of people said, oh, they're, they're just going to keep Bieber and um, trade him during the season. I mean, if you're really the Guardians, you got a couple things going on. I wrote about this. Okay, you could, the approach could be, well, they're concerned about his arm. And so they may want to wait to see if he's healthy. But you could also say, I'm concerned about his arm. And maybe I better trade him now before he ends up hurt again, because two of the last three years he was hurt again. In the same way, they were concerned about Savali's physical situation. And I, like Savali said, apparently he was healthy after he went to Tampa Bay, but his ERA went from 2.34 to something like 5.18. You tell me what happened there. I mean, he just, they saw something with him. The Guardians did. Five times on the disabled list since 21. Now, Bieber's had two, but the, the significant amount of time, one was three months and the other was, I think, um, nine or ten weeks uh, with these injuries. So, meanwhile, starting pitching is so valued in the industry that I think you could probably pull off some sort of pretty big deal for him, uh, even with the uh, question marks over him. All right. The winter meetings will be wrapping up here the next day or two in Nashville, and we'll see what happens. And again, Terry, his background, we talked about this last week, the TV deal that the Guardians are facing right now, their TV contract might be falling through and their games might be shown by MLB and produced by MLB, and that's kind of why they can't just go out and sign free agents as, as much as they might want to. If they're going to improve this team, they're going to, probably going to have to do it through trade. So that's where they're at. So Along now, those lines, David, I was talking to somebody last night. Now, he's not – he's a, in the NBA, top business guy, not with the Cavs, but another mid-to-small mid market team. He said, here's the truth. That, you know, He said, we are in a bind. He goes, we're not, nobody's happy with Bally. He said, but. We look out there, we can't find a single streaming service or single cable type service. There's these little streaming ones that's going to pay us anywhere close to what we would get from Bally, even if it gets cut some. And he said, I think Cleveland and baseball is in the same situation. They're, those big deals are long gone. And so then you'll be splintered on what you're trying to cobble together. You just don't get. And he goes, then it's kind of hard to but, you know, make your budget. Now, the Bally's thing has upended um, a lot of the small to middle market teams in both the NBA and NFL. I'm imagine probably in NHL. I don't know how many, how much Bally's does hockey. I know they a do lot, some. Yeah. I know they do some. And there's nobody out there like that willing to step up and step in. Yeah, it's going to be, if you're an agent of a free agent, 
this year, this off season, it's going to be a, a tough go, I think, because yeah. some of this money has dried up. So, yeah, right, the Terry? Big, you know, the big boys would be in it. That if you're Madison Square Garden Network or Ness in New England Sports, you know those, but the um, the others are not. Okay. Yep. Okay, so before we wrap up here, um, a couple months ago we did our 100th podcast episode and you invited fans to write in and tell us where they're from and why they're a Cleveland sports fan. And we're, we're getting these on the podcast as we can. So thanks, everybody, who sent those in. Um, here's a couple. One, This first one is from Bruce Reby. He said, Bruce says, I live just north of Columbus. I was born and raised in Euclid. My wife and I left the Cleveland area due to my job in 1978, but our love for sports teams never waned. My first Browns game at the age of 10 was the 1964 championship game against Baltimore. What a way to begin. As you know, due to the rich history of the Browns' success, the love for this team has passed from one generation to the next. Throughout the balance of the 60s and 70s, I attended most home games with my father and numerous uncles and cousins. We would all take a bus together from Euclid. Those are some of my greatest childhood and young adult memories. I also attended many Indians games during my early years. My fond memories of watching the Tribe in Cavernous Municipal Stadium. I was there for Sonny Siebert's no-hitter in 1966. Mm. The, the last out was a liner to Daddy Wags in left field. <laughs> Leon Widener. He, had, he once had a clothing store in L.A., Leon Widener did, and he really called it Buy Your Rags from Daddy Wags. <laughs> I love Leon that. Leon Widener was nicknamed was Daddy Wags, Leon Widener. <laughs> you know, it's a sad thing. Wagner um, passed away of a, a drug problem, and a guy who was desperately working with him to really help him uh, was Mudcat Grant. He had gotten mm-hmm. him into rehab and was really there. Um, it was, to me, it's one of those stories, it's a sad one because Wagner passed away. It was a powerful one because an old teammate heard about it and really invested himself in the last, I don't know, was it a year or two out of Wagner's life to, to try to help him. Yeah, we've seen that so many times in sports, Terry, where teammates come back years later to yeah. help each other out. So that's just another example. So um, let's see. Bruce goes on to say that uh, he was also at the opener for the Frank Robinson historic home runoff, Doc Medich, mm. when Frank Robinson was in Cleveland. So and he says, in summary, as a lifelong Cleveland sports fan, we all cherish the small victories as described above. Those events help sustain a lasting relationship with our teams. Even though we would have liked to see more championships, we can still hold on to the memories that seem bigger than life at the time they happened. Living in Columbus, I'm always amazed how many Browns fans reside in the southern part of Ohio, not just in Columbus, also Dayton and even Cincinnati. Browns fans always proudly wear their jerseys year after year, hardly ever saw a Bengals jersey until they started winning a couple of years ago. I'm so proud to say I'm from Northeast Ohio. Cleveland would always be my true home, and our sports teams are a big part of that feeling. So thanks for that, Bruce. And we do have one more here, and this one is from Steve Swanson, and he's from Kennedy, New York. And he says, hey, Terry, I enjoy the podcast. In response to explaining my Cleveland fandom as a Western New Yorker, my gateway was really Ohio State football. I had an aunt and uncle we were close with who lived in Columbus. The first time I recall watching was the 1979 OSU Rose Bowl team. I then started getting into the NFL, and I had some family that rooted for Buffalo and a couple who rooted for the Browns. I attended games for both as a kid and kind of rooted for both, but one uncle had Brown season tickets, and when I had to pick sides, Cleveland won. The Sype Kozar era and already having some Ohio football ties really pushed me all in on Ohio football. The intensity of an early 80s Browns-Steelers game at the old stadium captivated me. I remember a fan sitting, setting a Pittsburgh jersey on fire in the stands. 
And as a kid, I was thinking, these Cleveland fans mean business. My love for the Indians followed. They were terrible all of my youth, but offered a Cleveland sports fan a place to watch. And I had my heart ripped out in the 90s when my three daughters were young. My youngest daughter loved Cleveland sports and got me back into the NBA and the Cavs. Now, as a medical student in Syracuse, we're still able to make it to the home opener together. We have a special bond in Western New York among Browns and Guardians fans, including a very active Browns backers club. It's really hard to put into words the memories and moments shared with friends and family and new friends made through Passion for Cleveland Sports. My most recent family memories were being huddled around the radio listening to Jim Donovan. Again, that's from Steve Swanson in Kennedy, New York. Thanks for that, Steve. All right. If the Browns find a way to get in the playoffs with this group, I think it's going to really be something the fans will embrace and because it is an underdog team, you know, say led by a 38-year-old Joe Flacco, you know, be one of those things, you know, came off playing with his kids and throwing balls to his brother, the old college quarterback, and comes in to, to rescue the season. And even if they kind of drop in there somehow at, I don't know, 10 and 7 and they're winning game seven to two, like like Maslin beat uh, whoever it was in the, the open the championship yeah. game. You know, whatever it would take. I think that fans would like that, just like how they remember Don Strock and that from the Browns of the '80s. So let's keep an eye on that. But I, I think out of all this could come something that would be a nice chapter in Browns history. Yeah, maybe we could hear from some Browns backers chapters around the world since it's such a huge and expansive yeah. club. So uh, great. All right, Terry, I think we're done here. Anything else? That'll do it. All right. A couple of plugs here again. Um, I want to mention Terry's newsletter. If you go to cleveland.com slash newsletters, you can sign up for Terry's weekly newsletter. It comes out every Monday and it gives you everything he writes. It's free. It takes like a minute to sign up. And one more plug for Terry's book. Go out to Mentor on Saturday at one and you can meet Terry and get a book out there. It's a great holiday gift for someone on your list. So That'll do it for us. We will catch you next week on Terry's Talking.